I invite you to stand as you're able this morning for the reading of the gospel. I'm calling an audible this morning. We're not going to read Luke 24, that is mentioned in your bulletin. We're going to read from the 20th chapter of the gospel according to St. John, and we're reading verses 19 through 23. Dear friends, hear the word of the living God. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The text from John's Gospel this morning represents the first appearance of the risen Christ to His disciples. We know according to John that earlier that day it was the women who discovered the empty tomb. I find that appropriate. I don't know about you. The women were the last to leave the cross on Good Friday, and they were the first to arrive at the cemetery on Easter Sunday. They notified the disciples about what they had seen, and Peter and John, the lead team for the twelve, ran to see for themselves, but were uncertain as to what to make of it. An empty tomb does not initially mean a resurrection to Peter and John. It was Mary Magdalene who was the first to actually see the risen Christ, Although it's interesting that Luke 24 reports that her testimony in the disciples' ears was considered an idle tale, in other words, utter nonsense. But on Sunday evening, all that changed. Now, I don't have to tell you that the weekend was a train wreck. The disciples were fully aware of Jesus' death. And now they're afraid that the same fate awaits them. It is a legitimate fear. And so when the scene opens, what are the disciples doing? They have barricaded themselves behind locked doors, but at least they're still together. They're not breaking rank. It is a grief support group at this point, but they didn't leave the fellowship. Judas is gone. We know that story. Thomas was absent that day. You see what can happen when you miss church. (laughs) But the core, they're still together. I think of the wisdom of Hebrews 10, 25. You remember this? This is an important word. Let us not give up our meeting together, brothers and sisters, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us hold tight to one another, especially as the day of His return draws near. And so this grief support group, they're still together. 
though they're hanging by a thread. And on Sunday night, there's a breakthrough. Verse 19 says it like this, Jesus came and stood among them. I love that. A better translation closer to the Greek says it like this, Jesus came and stood right in the middle of them. In other words, Jesus is not at a distance. Jesus is not on the outside of their pain. Jesus is not on the periphery. Jesus is not on the edge. He's right in the middle of them. In other words, they're still Christ-centered. Do you know what happens to a church when it loses its center? When Christ is no longer the center of the fellowship. But apparently on this night, what John is saying is there is no obstacle. There is no predicament. There is no barrier that Jesus cannot penetrate. And he just breaks through their fear. He breaks through the disillusionment. And he stands smack dab in the middle of them. And then he speaks. The first word he says, peace be with you. I need to hear that this morning, don't you? In fact, Jesus repeats it twice, peace be with you. That had to be a relief to these disciples because think of what Jesus might have said after what he had been through. He might have appeared to them and said, uh, I'd like to thank you boys for that show of support on Friday. You guys really had my back at Golgotha, and I just want to go on record of saying thanks with friends like you who needs enemies. He could have said that. I might have said that. Jesus could have appeared to them and said, shame on you. But he said, shalom to you. You want to change the world? Next, some, next time somebody wrongs you, instead of blaming and shaming, shalom them. It'll not only change their life, it'll change yours. The first word Jesus speaks on Sunday matches the last word that he spoke on Thursday night. He said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And don't let them be afraid. Shalom. He shalomed them. It's a customary Jewish greeting. If you know the ancient culture, you know this was often the way that Jews would greet one another in the first century when they came to worship, to teaching at synagogue. But it's more than a greeting. It's a resurrection word. It's a way of saying all is well. Early on in the tradition of the church in the first and second century, this word became a part of the liturgy of worship. We call it today the passing of the peace. We did it just a few moments ago. It's not just a hello, how are you? The passing of the peace is a way of saying that the living Christ is right in the middle of us. I remember one young man who just finished seminary. He was trying to teach his first church how to be liturgical. And he began every service with these words, peace be with you. And he trained them to say, and also with you, peace be with you, was always the first word, and also with you. 
One Sunday, he stood at the lectern and the microphone wasn't working. And so he looked up at the AV guy and said, there's something wrong with this mic. And the people said, and also with you. (laughs) There was something wrong with these disciples on Friday. They denied him, they betrayed him, they abandoned him, and they pretended not even to know him. But Jesus never shamed them. He shalomed them. Peace. And then in verse 20, I love this. Notice what he does. And then he showed them his hands and his side. In other words, Jesus didn't say to his friends, look, no scars. He said, see the scars. I don't know if you've discovered it or not, but love always leaves a mark. Redemptive love always leaves a mark. This is Jesus' way of saying, I'm not a ghost. This is not an illusion. I'm not a metaphor for heaven's sake. It's not an apparition or a hallucination. It's him. It's the same one who took the nails and the thorns, who died a criminal's death, who breaks through the barricade and is alive and well, and he doesn't hide his scars. I have to tell you, isn't it wonderful to be able to be a part of a church or a fellowship where you don't have to fake it, where you don't have to pretend to be something that you're not, but where you can come into this community and be loved even with our scars. We don't hide them. A couple of weeks ago, Sherry and I, my wife and I, attended a concert in downtown Nashville at the Skirmerhorn. We love to go to the Skirmerhorn. It's called Violins of Hope, this program. The Nashville Symphony Orchestra played music on these old restored violins that had been recovered from concentration camps in Poland and Germany during the Holocaust. We actually met the man who restores these instruments. His name is Amnon Weinstein. He sat right behind us at Symphony Hall. This man, this Jewish man, has dedicated the last two decades of his life to locating and restoring these precious instruments. We met him that night and we heard his story. We went to the lecture before the concert that Juan Carlo hosted, and the first violinist stood up and told us this story. He said, when these instruments were delivered to the hall at the first of the week, he said, I opened them up and I played all of them, but there was one instrument in particular, he said, that chose me. On the back of it, someone had carved a Star of David It was from Auschwitz. And then he took his bow and he propped up that old piece of dead wood that had seen only death and destruction. And that old violin began to sing again. It came to life in our hearing. We noticed at one point in the performance that the maestro conducting the piece 
there was a reflection of light off of the hanging mics that was making the shape of a perfect cross on his back. It was a confirmation to us that there are some things that cannot destroy life. You cannot muzzle the melody of hope. You cannot silence the song of Easter. It's music to our ears. See the scars. It's a breakthrough. Jesus stands among them, speaks peace, shows his scars, and then says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And check this out. When he had said this, he breathed upon them. Now, what in the world does that mean? What's he doing? He's commissioning them. This is resurrection. This is Easter and Pentecost all woven together. He's resuscitating them. The word for breath in the Greek, do you know the word? It's pneuma, our word for pneumonia. That is a disease of the, the wind, the respiratory system. Pneuma, wind, breath. You remember the creation story. Genesis chapter 2. You remember what it was that brought the dust to life? Chapter 2, verse 7 says, the Lord God scooped up a handful of clay and breathed into it the breath of life, and it became a living being. The Hebrew word is ruach. It means wind or spirit or breath. That's the first creation. But John chapter 20 is the second creation. It's the new creation. There is a new humanity that is recreated out of the ashes when the risen one breathes into us. Bishop Pennell, who is here, Bishop and Janine are here, who was here, by the way, when this sanctuary was built to help to build it, this pulpit, which I always say is larger than my first two churches. <laughs> Bishop Pennell designed it. We refer to it as the SS Pennell still today. Bishop and I had the privilege of sharing in the homegoing service this last Monday for Dr. Bill Fleet. Do you remember Bill? Bill and Carolyn, married for 60 years, were part of this church, leaders in the church for 54 years. A physician, a pediatrician who had the gift of healing in his hands. His daughter, Tricia, on Monday came over here to the lectern and spoke at her daddy's funeral. And she said, when I was a little girl, Whenever me or my brother or sister broke something, we knew better than to go to mother with it because she couldn't fix it, but she would always say, wait till your daddy gets home. He'll be able to fix it. And they would wait, and sure enough, he would come in the evening, and they'd say, Dad, can, can you fix this broken toy? And she said, he'd always say the same thing. He'd say, of course I can fix it, but sweetie, not only can I fix it, I can make it better than it was before it was broken. Don't look now, but that's the gospel. <laughs> that's why we're here today. That's what this fuss is all about, that when God breathes, not only does God redeem your brokenness, but God makes us better than before we were broken. 
Only God can do that. I found an interesting image the other day, an interesting illustration of this. There's a Japanese art form that is called kintsuji. Have you heard of this? Kintsuji, which literally means the art of precious scars. What happens is, in this form of art, the artist takes broken pieces of pottery and puts them back together and fills them with gold, which creates beauty. And that's the gospel. Here's what it means in layman's terms, in this good news, God can use crackpots. Like you and like me. This is what God does with marred, resistant, defiant clay. He doesn't discard it. He breathes on it and redeems our precious scars. The last line in this text, I don't know about you, but when I read it, it's a little confusing. Maybe you heard it, maybe you didn't, but verse 23, Jesus says this, if you forgive the sins of any, talking to his disciples, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And I think that's a dangerous text. What did he mean? I'll tell you what he didn't mean. He didn't mean to say that God gives to his disciples authority to decide who's in and who's out. That's not what he meant. He doesn't mean to say that it's our responsibility to decide who's worthy of forgiveness and grace and who's not. Only God can do that. But what it means is that we as disciples of Christ, we are called to announce the terms of salvation. We're called to proclaim the conditions of pardon to which men and women are amenable, and it really depends on our response to the gospel as to whether our sins are remitted or retained. For the gospel to take root in your life, there has to be response. There has to be a decision. There has to be repentance. C.S. Lewis was on target when he said Christianity has no message for those who do not realize they're sinners. The gospel is for all the world, of course, but it requires, yes, demands personal response, a turning from sin and a yielding and surrendering of everything that you are to Jesus. The gospel is not simply something you hear It's something you do. It doesn't just sound good and then go home. It does good in you. Last word. Last week, something interesting happened in worship. That's always a good thing. I'd given an invitation to respond, to come forward, to make a profession of faith or to join the fellowship. And one of our teenagers who's a part of our youth choir, came toward me. I I thought to make a commitment of faith. I thought to join the church. So as he's coming to me, 
I stick out my hand, he shakes my hand and walks right past me, <laughs> right over here, next to the baptismal font. I thought maybe it was an early April Fool's. I didn't know what was happening. And he came over. I wouldn't embarrass him for, for anything, but his initials are, are Gabriel Sleenhoff. That's who it was. <laughs> Gabriel's here. He gave me permission, by the way. Sort of. <laughs> so he walks right past me. I'm standing there looking at you, wondering what's happening here. And he comes over by the baptismal font, and I notice that he picks up the cross. And I realize at that moment, oh, he's the Christopher. And he picks up the cross, and he comes right over here and stands right smack dab in the middle of us and lifts it up towards heaven. And the choir sang that beautiful, that beautiful anthem, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And there's Gabriel holding the cross. And then he went up the center aisle and we followed him in silence out to the narthex and into the world. And suddenly it occurred to me that that's the response that God is looking for in us. Not just to come to an altar, though that's critical, not just to make a public confession, not just to join the church, but to deny ourselves and pick up a cross and follow the risen one into the world so that we might reveal the marks of love so that we can speak peace in a culture of violence, so that we can become restored instruments of hope to make music in a world that has lost its song, so that we may actually, for Christ's sake, resuscitate dry bones and proclaim that the women were right. He's not dead. He's risen. And he is right in the middle of us. The best response on Easter to an empty tomb is to follow Gabriel's lead so that others may actually have a breakthrough on Easter and so that they will join us as we lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaim till all the world adore his sacred name. That's our mission. That's our meaning. That's our message to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.